0: Welcome to Love This Food Thing podcast. I'm Gemma. This is the place where we explore our relationship with food, be it friend or foe, and how this affects our behaviour. Here's today's episode. Hi, welcome back to Love This Food Thing podcast. I am delighted to be joined by Sabrina Magnan. I didn't check on your name, Sabrina. Is it Magnan?
1: Yes, I am. Um, it's it's a French name, so it's usually pronounced Magna. But it's a very hard word to say for no. Anyone who's do that not again. French. Say that again. Magna. Is Ma- it? There you go. That was good.
0: I'm an, I'm a voiceover artist, Magna. Okay, here we're gonna go. Go again. I won't even edit this out. So I'm delighted to be joined by Sabrina Magnar. Sabrina is a food freedom and intuitive eating coach who helps chronic dieters heal their relationship with food and their bodies and develop lasting health-promoting habits so that they can find true health free from obsession and guilt. Sabrina, welcome to Love This Food Thing Podcast.
1: Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Welcome to my professionalism (laughs) Of of
0: like messing up introductions and just keeping it all in, but it makes it more authentic, doesn't it? Absolutely. Okay. So let's just, let's start then. You are the first, you are the first podcast guest of 2024, even though this will be going out a little bit later. So tell me, how would you describe your relationship with food? Would you describe it as a friend or a foe?
1: Oh, absolutely. A friend. Definitely would not have said the same thing a couple of years ago, but now without a doubt, it is a friend. It is a source of pleasure, of connection, and something that I'm so happy that I can enjoy in such a peaceful way now. Wow. So only two years have you been able to say that. So what was
0: going on beforehand and then what made you switch?
1: So I would say it's been more than two years. It's been a couple of years now. Um, and I would say that what really made the switch for me was kind of hitting my own rock bottom. So a little story about my background is that yeah. I was a synchronized swimmer from a very young age. Were so you? I don't know. If- Fascinating.
0: Yeah. Fascinating. I watch synchronized swimming and I think, how on earth do you do that? It looks so
1: technical. <laughs> It is so hard. It is such a hard sport. And um, I started it when I was eight years old. So my sister was also a synchronized swimmer and I had a lot of people in my life who were. So I got into the sport and what started off as like this really great way to um, get involved and, and discover discipline I realized over time, and I can't even, I don't even know if I could say I realized at the time because you're kind of in this bubble, but it's a very body image focused sport. Of and course. So, Is it like gymnastics in that sense? Very similar, very right. similar to gymnastics and ballet. ballet. Yeah, yeah. And so, because of course, you're in your bathing suit mm. all the time, and mm. any judged sport is gonna have a little bit of that because they're judging you on your appearance and especially synchronized swimming is all about the legs. And so I developed this obsession with thigh gaps growing oh. up.
0: Can we just stop? i got yes. two things. This is completely unrelated, but then we'll go back to the thigh gap because I had that thing about my legs too. I think lots of women do and lots of young girls. The training for the synchronized swimming, mm-hmm. how much training do you do on the
1: ground? Oh, what a good question. So I was training about 20 to 25 hours a week. So it was really, really rigid. I would go to school until about 345. And then I had a note to help me leave early to go to practice. And then I would spend my nights at the pool. So from like four until eight or 9pm. And I would spend also Sunday mornings at the pool. And I would say that Maybe about um, five to five to eight of those hours were spent outside of the pool.
0: Wow. Okay. Mm -hmm. Okay. Fascinating. I could talk to you for ages about this. So let's go. Okay. So obviously the obsession with the legs go to go to the thigh gap, particularly if you're surrounded by your.
1: I guess it didn't know it is all girls isn't it all the other girls who are just naturally that way yes exactly and that's a really good point is that my body is not naturally that right. way my no, right. I have a, a more muscular build and no matter what I do if I starve myself I will not have a thigh gap yeah. um and and I didn't realize that at the time so I won't spoiler alert, I did end up starving myself in order to get that thigh gap. Um, But at the time, I had the messaging that if you just have enough willpower, then you can shape your body into whatever you want it to be. And that the thinner you are, the better you are, especially in the sport where if you look at the Olympic team, it's all they all look the same. They're tall. They're very, very thin. And what you can also see in the synchronized swimming world is that Girls who don't have the typical body shape, so who might have more muscular size or who are a little bit shorter, even if they're extremely talented, won't make certain teams or won't have the same kind of success because again, it's a judged sport. And so a lot of it comes down to appearance. And so it got ingrained in my mind during that time that gaining weight was the worst thing in the world. And there's there's the culture around synchronized swimming. I'm, I'm hoping it's getting better. But at the time, um, there's currently... I don't know if it's still happening, but there was a lawsuit against the Olympic uh, Synchronized Swimming Federation in Canada because of the practices that they used at the Olympic Center, like asking the girls to weigh themselves every single week and having to stay within a certain range. And if you are above that range, which was a range that was set arbitrary based off of nothing really, then you have one strike, two strikes, and then three strikes, you're out. And so the practices in the sport, there's, you know, the eating disorders run rampant. And Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And as we said, anything, gymnastics Mm -hmm. and ballet,
0: I think they are the top ones, aren't they? And now you're talking about synchronized swimming, which is kind of an amalgamation of both of them really, isn't it?
1: Exactly. Exactly. So was this,
0: was this, okay, so you're being tested. So was this also, imagine, I am imagining that you were very, it was very competitive between all the girls. And I'm also imagining it was reinforced constantly from your coaches.
1: Yes, so I definitely had a whole range of different coaches. Some of them were better than others. Um, one of them specifically really created that sense of competition um, mm. within our team. She was, <laughs> to, to say the word, she was a little crazy. Right. And on one of the one of the things that she made us do at one of our practices was sit around in a circle and go around saying one thing that we don't like about our teammates, oh, which was so crazy. <laughs> I look back on it now and I'm like, I can't believe that. Um, And, and, you know, I think I was maybe 12 at the time. It was so young.
0: What what were you meant to do with that? You're meant to go, well, I don't like so-and-so's shoulder or something
1: literally yeah so my my coach told me what she didn't like about me was that um I always looked nervous at practice I always looked stressed and I wanted to, <laughs> obviously at the time I was too young but I would have said like yes yeah, because I was I was yeah. constantly stressed out at practice
0: yeah and terrified of you
1: exactly yeah okay and, and, so you know, oh, yeah she She, um, one of my friends, she had uh, naturally just a bigger build. Like she would have never been able to have like the sticks in body figure that you see in synchronized swimming. And, um, my coach would make her, if she didn't have a good practice, would make her as a punishment, like tell her you can't have cookies or you can't have dessert for the rest of the week.
0: Yeah. Wow. Wow. So you're 12 years old.
1: Yeah exactly and and as you know like those are your formative years and that was just the synchronized swimming part and that's not to mention just the culture that we live in and so i actually didn't i didn't really develop issues around food while i was swimming because i was still training so much that like food was just fuel like i was training 20 25 hours a week right. but As I was heading into my last year, which was when I was 16, I started thinking about, oh my God, well, when you're no longer training 20, 25 hours a week, you're going to gain weight if you keep eating this way. And so I kind of started to, in my last year, kind of condition myself to eat less and to eat quote unquote healthier. And my version of healthier was like the rice cakes and the low calorie crackers and only um, like salads without carbs. And as I stopped swimming, my body started to change naturally Mm -hmm. because Mm -hmm. I was growing into my adult body. So my hips started getting wider and I saw that as I'm doing something wrong because that's what society tells you. Like if you're gaining weight, that means you're doing something wrong. Not that you're just your body is meant to change, not that your life is going to look differently from one stage of your life to another. No one tells you this stuff so did you, did you have anyone in your family saying, "Uh-uh, actually, it's okay." So not really, because I think that at the time, um, my family was still somewhat stuck in diet culture. I mean, I remember very vividly a comment that my sister had made. um, And she said, before I quit the sport, she said, if you keep eating that way, you're going to gain so much weight when you stop. Was she also competitively? um No, no. So she wasn't as competitive as I was. And she only did it for a couple of years more on a recreational side. Okay. Um, but i think that and i can't i can't be upset at my family for having been a little bit in diet culture definitely not to the extent of other women that i've spoken to whose moms like put them on weight watchers at an early age like that was not the case in my family at all however there was was still some fat phobia and some weight bias going on we have a very athletic um family and so there was kind of this fear and maybe it was a fear that was created within me as well that Mm. like if I gain weight, I won't be as worthy and people won't see me as um, respectable or lovable or um, I don't don't even know, like just I have very high standards and my family (laughs) has very high standards and I've always seen myself as an overachiever and so I saw my body as being part of that.
0: I really understand that because not everyone trains age twelve for twenty five hours a week mm-hmm. and leaves school early. Just not everyone can or or even wants to do it. But just it's, it's an unusual situation to be in, isn't it? And I think it's those that belief system gets laid down so early. I know you're talking about sort of global culture as well, diet culture, but you don't really think like that when you're twelve. Your world's really quite small. Mm-hmm. For most of us. And I it's very difficult to kind of then shed those layers, isn't it, without feeling vulnerable and um like you're like you're in the wrong body.
1: Yeah. Exactly. And like, you're doing something wrong and, and it wasn't even just eight to 12, it was eight to 16. And then 16 is an age where like social media is there and your social circle influences you. And, and that's where the culture really gets to you. And so it was kind of this perfect storm for disordered eating because mm. when i noticed my body was changing mm. i did what everyone else would do which was look up weight loss hacks and nutrition and what i should or shouldn't be eating and so that innocent what started as an innocent desire to lose weight mm. which is most people right like we don't look down the line what that's going to look like mm. it turned into years of disordered eating of eating 1200 calorie diets, of tracking every calorie into my fitness pal, of having anxiety if I ate something that I quote unquote shouldn't, or spending two hours at the gym and running half marathons because that's what burns the most calories. And really, I'm losing my period and having my hair thinning out. Like, And at the time, I didn't even realize that this was unhealthy I thought that this is just what people do.
0: Yeah. I imagine you were surrounded by people doing a similar thing, really.
1: Do Mm -hmm. you remember how you felt? Um, So I would say the first couple of years was more on the binge eating side. So the first couple of years, what I would do is I would eat really, really, quote unquote, clean, but like Mm. under eat, not eat carbs um, from Monday to Friday or from morning until night. And then nighttime, like after 8 p.m. and the weekend was when all bets were off. And that's when the binging happened. And I remember waking up every morning and thinking today is going to be different. Like today is going to be the day that I finally stick to my healthy eating plan. And I would look at other people who were able to just have like one cookie or one piece of chocolate and walk away my mom was one of those people yeah and I just didn't understand I thought that that was like something part of their DNA and that there was something in my DNA my biology that was different
0: so and, can I just ask you so did you ever um, binge and then
1: purge so it happened a couple of times okay but and, you didn't get stuck into that Yes, I didn't get stuck into that, but there were times I used to love baking. I still do. But at the time, I would bake every Friday night and baking always led to binge eating uh, naturally. And so there were there were some times where I would eat so much and I would feel so uncomfortable and sick that that was my really like my only way out yeah of course because I'm wondering how
0: okay here this is what I'm getting at I'm wondering how you managed your feelings of fullness and disappointment and failure when you went to sleep would you just would sleep come over you because you'd get so much and then you'd wake in the morning full of resolution and newness and resolve and was that enough to kind of
1: get you out of bed so I would say that over exercising was a uh, really big one. Uh, um, okay. I would often binge in the afternoon before uh. going to work, and then I would over exercise after work. And um, a lot, there was some some purging, some going for really long walks, and skipping meals. A lot of skipping meals because if I binged, then if I just, quote unquote, save up those calories in my next meal by not eating them, then it kind of like balanced out in my mind. Like everything was a math equation and I was counting everything into my fitness pal. And then when I got my Fitbit and I was able to see how many calories I was burning, um, that's when I went into more of the orthorexia realm and I became obsessively... um, focused and created this unhealthy obsession with being healthy. But in my mind, being healthy meant being skinny.
0: Interestingly, how did your body respond to your lifestyle? Did you maintain your weight? Did you lose weight? Did you put it on? How, how was it affected? During those years of
1: binge eating, I was, um, constantly kind of up and down in weight, especially in the summer. Right. I would gain a lot of weight in the summer. And then in the winter was kind of like my getting fit kind of year. Sure. Um, but during that time, it was up and down. And then when I developed orthorexia, then I realized, okay, if I just eat less and I move more and I can burn more calories than I eat, then I lose weight. And that became this kind of, fuel. I felt like I had this sense of control over something. And so as I started losing weight, people would make comments and then I was able to fit into clothes I used to not fit into. And I would get encouragement and people would tell me I was disciplined and I felt like people looked up to me. And so I lost weight and I lost weight and I lost weight until I was 30 pounds under my set plate weight which is a lot given Mm. that I am not in a big body
0: okay we're gonna take a quick break welcome back to love this food thing podcast I'm here with Sabrina she just gave me a little lesson on her surname again I'm not gonna (laughs) say it not gonna say it Sabrina mania um where were we? We were talking about your orthorexia and you were talking about the notion or how you felt in control. And I was just thinking of the exhausting nature of those, they're like tyrannical regimes, aren't they? When you're mm-hmm. when you're living like that and and it's like living in, in a prison. I'm quite interested in, do you think or have you thought about whether subconsciously you were replicating your what do I want to say your synchronized swimming training all those years do you think you were trying to ah, keep that's such a good question Mm.
1: so I've I've talked about this in therapy which is (laughs) okay Okay. (laughs) um but I I would say that the the obsessive nature around food really got bad when I moved for university which is um, not uncommon for eating yeah. disorders. Yeah. Um, because I had never lived away from home. I didn't know how to do my own laundry. I didn't know how to do my own cooking. And so I moved from Montreal to Ottawa to go to university because I wanted to have that experience of living on my own, of being away from my family, of developing that independence. And that was really hard. It was super hard because now... I had to make decisions for myself and I was not used to doing that. And I felt very out of control because I was in a new environment and there I didn't know many people there. And so food became this sense of control for me. Cool. And I am just naturally a control freak. And I, I know that, and I'm trying to move away from that because I know that your language is very important and you are what you say. Um, but I do like having this sense of control, this sense of structure. I'm very, very Type A. I am a recovering perfectionist, and uh, so can we just de- del- can we just delve into that a little bit? Yeah, is it, is it about being a
0: control freak? Because I think that that's possibly uh, the solution. Is it not about feeling anxious and vulnerable and overwhelmed? Is that what's underpinning it? Yeah.
1: Oh, absolutely. I do have, um, I do have this anxious nature and I, I still see it in my work now that when I feel anxious about business, about my work, my solution is to work more is to feel like I am actually working towards something. And so at the time it was this way of managing this anxiety and I was studying financial math and economics. That was what my honors bachelor was, which was not an easy program. I had a lot of anxiety around that as well. And I am someone that like, if I'm going to do something, I'm going to be the best. And so I'm going to graduate top of my class. And so there was this, and and I think it, it, the same thing wrapped around with food. Like if I'm mm. going to be healthy, I'm going to be the healthiest one. But my definition of what healthy was, was super skewed because of diet culture
0: is it just diet culture though it, can you can you just lay the point the finger at diet culture because it, isn't it a plethora of contributing factors your psychology your physiology your your history mm-hmm. your your, yes. uh, your early early years and of course we have this this culture but i'm mm, i just think that these things would be popping up anyway i just don't yeah. think that diet culture doesn't help but we would be finding some way to control, to negate our anxieties, to 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 not feel overwhelmed, to feel good enough. I think mm-hmm. you, you know. I,
1: what do you think about that? I think, I think you have a point. And at the time, I look back on how my day to day looked, and one thing I really remember is that my social media. Had a really big impact yeah. on my behaviors, right? Because I was watching what I eat in a day videos and you know, nutri- like healthy recipes. And so, what I noticed is that my environment was feeding into my behaviors and feeding into my beliefs. And had I known about intuitive eating and food freedom and having a healthy relationship with food at the time. I like to think that having that seed planted of like skipping meals is actually not great for you. And you're not supposed to be eating 1200 calories. And like if you're losing, I think back on I felt tired constantly. I was cold all the time. My hair Hmm. was thinning out. My nails were brittle. I lost my period. And I didn't even associate that to my eating habits. I got a bunch of tests done because I thought maybe I was anemic, maybe I had um, low blood pressure. Like I got all of these tests done, or maybe I was like deficient in certain vitamins. And I remember after a couple of years, I was talking to one of my doctors and she asked me, like, you know, some of the symptoms that we see, especially like missed periods, are from. Um, a past or current with eating disorders. And I I don't want to be insensitive here, but have you ever struggled with an eating disorder? And I told her, I was like, no, I've never have. Not realizing that the behaviors that I had and the mindsets that I have were extremely disordered and unhealthy. Yeah. Yeah. So I, uh, I think the diet culture played a really big piece of it because of the fact Mm. that my behaviors were encouraged and they were perpetuated by the environment that I was in.
0: I was having this conversation with a doctor the other day. He was, he was, he came on the podcast. We were talking about body dysmorphic disorder and we were talking about influences. And I think Sabrina, I think I'm probably quite a lot older than you. And I don't know how I would have coped. No, I do know how I would have coped with social media. I would have done exactly what I did Mm. when I was younger. But I found those same influences and articles because diet culture, how old is diet culture? Mm, Let's say 150, maybe 200 years old. But I I found it in print media and magazines and Mm -hmm. um, books and, and diet books but certainly that the amount of content and the instant accessibility of all your kind of food and diet and exercise content that's just, it's just there, isn't it? I think, um, yeah, that would have certainly lent to my struggle. So I, I really, I really hear you on that. I just wanted to point out that I found those, that stuff out anyway, which probably just took me a bit longer. I had to go to the yeah. shop and buy a magazine, you know, instead of opening my phone. So how did you, so she, she said to you, this doctor said to you, have you ever had any kind of food eating disorder? And you said, no, 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 not me. Mm -hmm. Did you then reflect on that when you went home or or what happened then?
1: So what was interesting is that this conversation with the doctor happened after I healed from my, from my eating disorder. So after, yeah. So Basically what happened is as I was getting deeper and deeper into orthorexia, um, which for anyone who doesn't know what it is, it's this unhealthy obsession with being healthy. Yeah. And um, I was losing weight and I was, I had this belief that if I look a certain way, if I achieve a certain goal weight, even though like I think that goal weight was always elusive because it kept changing as I was losing weight, it was never enough. Oh, it's never uh, enough. Never enough. Never no, enough. no. And I had this belief that if I look a certain way or achieve a certain weight, um, then everything is going to be better. I'm going to be happier. I'm going to be confident. I'm going to love myself. Yeah, all yeah, of these things. Yeah, yeah. Then, li- then life will start. That kind of exactly. Yeah. Then yeah. life will start. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> and um, what was interesting is that as I got deeper, deeper into it, I became more and more unhappy, actually. Yeah. So... I was losing friends because I didn't want to go to restaurants because eating made me anxious. Um, I was isolated. I was always tired. I was always cold. So I didn't want to go anywhere. And especially I live in Montreal. So (laughs) the winters were tough. Yeah. And, um, I just, I had no energy and I was always obsessed with exercising. Like everything revolved around food and around exercise and my body and my weight. And, um, I remember there, it was at my sister's baby shower and I was becoming an aunt for the first time. And this should have been like the happiest day of my life. Mm. And all I remember from that day is the food. Wow. I spent my entire day around the buffet table because my mom had like gone caterers and we had like all of these foods that I didn't allow myself to eat. So pastas and uh, pizzas and, and sandwiches And I just kept filling my plate up and then going back for more and then going back for more and then going back for more to a point that like, I felt so sick. And even when I was having conversations with people, I was physically talking to them mentally. I was thinking either about, oh my God, I've eaten so much or I want to go back for more. Like, and that's what it is when you're struggling with your relationship with food, everything is about it. Mm. It's kind of like if you're trying to talk to someone, but that person is on their phone this entire time, that's kind of how it was with me. But instead of me being on my phone, I was in my head. And that was one of those days where I ate so much that I did purge because I felt so uncomfortable. Right. And that night, I remember sitting in my parents' basements. It was like cold, it was dark, and I felt so miserable and unhappy. And I realized, and I, I started thinking about the future and I was like do I want to keep living this way when I'm like 50, 60, 70 years old?
0: Did you have that moment? You had that one of those waking up moments. Can I just say, I love that you're in the basement of your
1: parents' house having this revelatory
0: wake up call. Go on. Yes.
1: Yeah. And it was starting to think about the future of like, if I want to have kids, given my current circumstances and how I feel would I ever be able to have like morning brunch with them and put maple syrup on pancakes and eat breakfast with them? No, not right now because I'm way too anxious to do that. Think of all the sugar in maple syrup. Like, I would never be able to do that. Yeah. And I had a summer coming up where I had this opportunity to travel. And I think I was in early 20s, like very, very early 20s. And I had no responsibilities that summer. I had no job, no relationship. And I had always wanted to travel. Like one of my biggest values is being independent, being able to travel. And that was what I saw in my future. But when I thought about traveling, I just got anxious because I can't control my food there. I can't be in my own environment. And there was this opportunity to go to Italy to be an au pair. I, I don't know if you're familiar with au pairing.
0: I'm familiar with au pairing and I'm familiar with Italy. Yeah. How fantastic. Yes.
1: <laughs> I haven't so, been in um, au pair, but I, I know where you're going. Yeah. Yeah. So basically I live in Nanny yeah. and um, I had always wanted to go to Italy. And I found out about this opportunity to be an au pair. And when I thought about doing it, there was this voice in my head saying, well, no, you can't do that. You're going to gain weight. And Mm. if you're in Italy, you're going to have to eat pasta and bread and gelato. (laughs) And now I look at it and I'm like, when I think about going to a country that has amazing food, all I feel is excitement. Excitement to try the culture, to get out of my comfort zone. And back then it was just like this crippling anxiety of what if I gain weight? And this is coming from someone who was, underweight at the time. Yeah. And the the thought of gaining weight was the scariest thing in the world. And it was actually realizing the amount of resistance and fear and anxiety that I was feeling about something that should be exciting, expansive, fun. That was when I really realized If you don't do this, if you don't fix this, if you don't step out of your comfort zone and do something that is going to shock your system, you will live like this forever. You will stop yourself from traveling, from dating, from doing the things that you're actually meant to do because this is kind of like the tagline of my business. You're letting the size of your body dictate the size of your life. And Ooh. that's really what I was doing.
0: Ooh, that's a great tagline. And also, <laughs> any kind of eating disorder behavior, and I love how you're talking about your behaviors, is that it? they break your spirit. At first, mm-hmm. everything's terrific because it works. And you're feeding your emotional distress, and it, it's a solution. But it, 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 it's short-lived for everybody.
1: It's the Timings are different for everybody, but it's short-lived. And they just break you. Yeah. They break you and they take away from your personality. Oh, And that was the biggest thing. Right. Right. And were you very depressed? imagine you were. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And I didn't realize it at the time. Sure. Sure. But I look back on who I was back then and who I am now as like my real authentic self. And I feel bad for anyone who had to spend any time with me because I was extremely negative and I was extremely pessimistic and and not fun to be around and super controlling and obsessive and I've spoken to so many women who say the same thing of like I'm not myself anymore I'm not my best self I'm not who I want to be and it's really sad to see how much our relationship with food and our bodies affect our entire life it is arguably the most important relationships in your life because what other relationships will you see that affect everything that you do and the way that you show up in the world?
0: Yeah, and also we have to eat to survive. So if you're not eating or you're messing around with your food, you're you are having an. I talked about this before, an existential crisis because you're you're messing with your existence. And also, you live in your body. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's it. You're here. You're in your body. Yeah. Um, I want to know, fascinating stuff. And thank you for being so very vulnerable and candid because it's not easy. Did you go to Italy? You're in the basement. You're thinking, am I going to carry on doing this for the rest of my life? I'm never going to be able to have maple syrup with my kids.
1: Then what happens? So I decided to do the scariest thing in my life and I booked a trip and I went for the summer. Wow. And... I have to say this, and I hope that anyone who's listening understands this and like listens to these words. It was so scary. It did not feel good. It was super uncomfortable. I remember being on the plane and already feeling anxious because my eating habits were different. And I, I was having to eat more because I was like my my time difference was off. And the second I got to Italy and I got to my host parents house where I was, you know, gonna keep the kids, mm. the nunna was there and mm-hmm. she was making us dinner. Mm. And the second I walked in from like a day of traveling, she goes, Oh my god, you're so skinny. Let's get you some food. <laughs> <laughs> I would have I would have tried to to imitate her accent, but it would have been completely butchered. So I'm not going to. <laughs> please, please, um, please tell me she came came to you with a huge plate of pasta. Yeah. So I get there and my fears were like right in front of Aww. me. Carb central. Yeah. And my my voice in my head said, You've made a huge mistake. Like mm-hmm. this was a bad idea. But and and That's the thing about doing things that are actually going to help you grow and help you create the life that you want to live. Most of the time, it's not comfortable. It's not the thing that is the easiest thing to do. The easiest thing to do is to stay in your comfort zone, is to not do the thing that scares you. And so during that summer, it planted this seed in my mind that your relationship with food is actually the most important thing that you have. Because when I was there, no one in Italy talks about calories. No No one's dieting. No one's going to Weight Watchers. No one has Noom. No one has MyFitnessPal on their phone. Like no one. Where were you in Italy? I was in Pescara, which is on the Adriatic Sea, like right by the water.
0: beautiful. I think let's just say... I'm sure that they have their fair share of food disorders and body disorders in Italy. We know that. But what I'm picking up from you, and I can relate to this, and it's kind of like like a holiday romance with food because when I really got myself together, kind of the tipping point was I started to go to Sicily and I was introduced to food in a very different source of a way because their food culture is Mm -hmm. different. Historically, it's different, Mediterranean culture. And there is this celebration of food that we don't have over here and I don't think you have in Canada and the rest of the States. In that's America. exactly right. So I think we we come to it with with bright eyes going, oh gosh, it is, it's true, it's true. Um, so I just, th- I just wanted to kind of say that. And also you've spoken so eloquently about culture and how influenced we are by culture. And, and mm-hmm. there you were in Italian food culture with a nonna, you know, the nonna's cooking. <laughs> it wasn't the mom, it was the nonna. So that's really important.
1: Yes, yeah. And that's exactly it is there was this sense of food is supposed to be enjoyed. Yeah. You're supposed to savor every bite and and slow down and be present and be mindful. And I remember there was a lot of other au pairs in the city and we would um, go out for a gelato and all the other girls would just be excited to go wow. out for yeah. ice cream and would feel relaxed. And I used to look at them and think, how are they doing that? Like, wow. how are they excited and not nervous about going out for gelato. And then after a couple of weeks of living there, I had my first ever gelato and I like really enjoyed it. And I enjoyed it without guilt, which was huge for me. And over time, I'm not going to say that that summer like completely changed my life, but it planted a seed that there's something there Because as I was starting to eat more, probably twice as much as I was eating in Canada and I was eating more carbs and I was actually nourishing my body, I felt better, not worse. Right, right. Yeah. So the world didn't end, did it? No, surprisingly enough, it did not end. Yeah, And I had more energy to go for runs and to work out and to move my body. And I just felt so much better. And when I came back to Canada, I told myself, I want to keep this up. I had like reverse culture shock coming back to Canada because I was like seeing all of the blind spots and all of the things that I did not love here. Right. Um, but I really wanted to keep that up. And I would say that it took a couple of years of kind of going back and forth and falling back into restrictive patterns. But eventually as I started my business, I actually started my business as a weight loss coach because I was still somewhat deep in diet culture and my business coach had told me that the only way for you to be successful is to market weight loss. Right. I started marketing weight loss and I started working with clients and what I noticed as I started working with them is they would come to me and they would tell me about like, I lost a pound this week. And I just didn't care. I was like, tell me about how you feel, how your relationship with food, with your body is. I love this. We're going to take a quick break. I love this. Okay.
0: (laughs) Welcome back. I'm with Sabrina and I just cut Sabrina off there at the break because... Sabrina started her her business and she has uh, started off as a weight loss business. Her clients are coming to her and saying, oh, I've lost a pound and she's not interested. She wants to know how they feel about food and their bodies and themselves. So take it from here, Sabrina.
1: Yeah. So I just felt like this huge sense of misalignment. Mm. I felt like I was living out of my values and... It, just, it felt really icky to a mm-hmm. point that like, I didn't even want to market myself anymore because it didn't feel good. And so I actually didn't know about intuitive eating at the time, which okay. is like super crazy to me. Mm-hmm. But I started diving into more about what it means to have a healthy relationship with food. And then I read the intuitive eating book and I felt like someone had written this for me. Like I literally felt like someone had taken all of my thoughts, all of my behaviors that I used to have and put it in a book. And I felt so seen. I felt so understood, not alone. And reading that book just really clicked for me of this is what can i just meant to do. Can I just ask, uh, yes, what you're meant to
0: do. Sorry, I just cut you off there. Can I just ask what if you were pitching intuitive eating... I'm going to do my pitch and then you can correct me. Intuitive Mm -hmm. eating is eating what you feel like when you feel like it.
1: So that's definitely part of it. So intuitive eating is a mix of your intuition. So what your body is communicating with you Mm -hmm. and then also your knowledge. So knowledge about Ah, how foods make you feel, for Ah, example. Okay. I've always missed that bit. Okay. Okay, so, yes. And, so and that's the biggest thing that people misunderstand is a lot of people see intuitive eating as like the hunger and fullness diet. I right. eat when I'm hungry. I right. stop when I'm full.
0: Right, okay. But you, actually you don't know because if you have had a disordered relationship with food and you have various behaviors, you're completely out of contact with your body. So you don't know when you feel full and you don't know when you feel empty and you don't exactly. know what you're craving for because your system's out of balance anyway. So it takes a while to get there, doesn't it?
1: Oh, absolutely it does. And and that's that's the thing about becoming or re-becoming an intuitive eater because we're all born as intuitive eaters. Yeah. Like we have this internal guidance system that is in our body that we're born with. If you think about toddlers, they cry when they're hungry. They will not stop crying until they get food. And then when they do get food and they've had enough, they turn their head or they push their plate away. And we, have, we all have that system inside of us but somewhere along the way if you no longer feel like you're an intuitive eater which means you no longer are capable of trusting listening to your body you feel a lot of guilt and shame around food you feel obsessed with it you emotionally eat that means that somewhere along the way your intuitive eater abilities they didn't go away they just got buried they got buried under a pile of noise and diet and chatter and fear mongering around food there was a there was
0: yeah can I just pick up on that there was a social experiment I don't know Oxford Cambridge I think with a bunch of young kids not toddlers I'm gonna say let's say five to seven and they were given as much food as they wanted to eat I think over a period of time and they were so regulated they just Mm -hmm. ate when they wanted to and then and none of them over and I'm also thinking about it was just the fact that everything was available but once they were Mm -hmm. satiated and I think because they all had similar behavior um yeah it was just they just in it quote unquote normally and the same things happens with with rats Mm -hmm. when rats are fed and they're well and they're not stressed then they also regulate their food
1: Yes. And I'm so glad that you brought up those rat studies because um, food addiction is a big topic that people talk about. Mm. And um, there's actually no studies that show that food addiction is a real thing. A lot of people will bring up those rat studies where rats kind of once they had access to sugar, they ate and ate and didn't stop eating almost in the same way that you would with drugs. But what those rat studies and people kind of either ignore or don't talk about is that these rats had intermittent access to food, to fuel, to the thing that they need to survive. The same way that when you're dieting, you have intermittent access to food. You're skipping meals, you're under eating or on a mental level, you're telling yourself that you shouldn't be having this. You can't have that, that you're gonna start again tomorrow. All of that is really disruptive to your mind, to your body. And so of course, when rats have access, to sugar, which is a source of fuel, a very fast acting source of fuel, then they will go after it and they will keep eating until they're so full that they can't anymore. Not because they're, it's an addictive nature, but because they've just had no access to food. And yeah. so their brain is saying, might as well stock up on as much fuel as we possibly can, because we don't know when's the next time that we're going to have access to this thing that need you to survive.
0: It's a, it's a, where's that temple in India? I want to say Kashmir. Is it Kashmir? Which is I can't help which you is, there. <laughs> you need to look it up. Someone's probably going to message and go. It's it's here. It's here. Please do. <laughs> it's it's dedicate. It's dedicated. It's devoted to the rat. And, though, mm. and now listen. I have a real issue with rats, so I wouldn't be visiting. But I'm fascinated by them as well. And there are something like eight thousand rats that live at this temple, and they sit on. Uh, The guy's head when he's meditating and they, because they are stress-free and uh, have abundant food, they behave in exactly the way that that you are saying. And I'm also thinking about uh, monkeys when they find fermented fruit and they eat it and get really drunk Mm -hmm. and then... Wake up the next day, hangover free, and move on. But I'm just just it's it, yeah, go on. Sorry. You're talking about the accessibility of sugar and stuff, and 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 that's the nature of dieting, isn't it? You can have this then, and you mustn't have that, and then you mm-hmm. can do that. And it's just so repressive.
1: Yeah, exactly. And so finding out about intuitive eating mm-hmm. and really understanding it, that's when I realized this is the key. This is you cannot develop healthy consistent health promoting habits like disregarding what happens to your weight your health is determined by your habits and your behaviors and if you want to have consistent sustainable lasting health promoting habits you cannot do it if the fun like the fundamentals the foundation of a healthy relationship with food and your body is not there because if you're still stuck in that disordered relationship with food of guilt and shame and starting again tomorrow and all or nothing mentality, yes, you may be able to lose weight temporarily. Yes, you may get short-term results, but the weight will always come back because it is not sustainable. And over time, I'm sure that you know the harm of yo-yo dieting, your health worsens, your metabolism slows down. We get so many negative health effects because of this constant trauma on your body, on your food habits. And so realizing that this is not only important, but it is the key, it became such a passion for me to help women because I would hate anyone to be where I was a couple of years ago. It breaks my heart to talk to people who are still stuck in that mindset and who are living their lives in the future. Once I lose weight, then I'll be happy. Then I'll travel. Then I'll be confident. Then I'll date. And you're going to wait your entire life until you get on your deathbed and look at, oh my God, how many things have I missed out on? How many things did I wait on? And I, now here I am and I can't go back in time.
0: I absolutely agree. I've, I Also, I think what doesn't, what doesn't get discussed so much is the, well, it does get discussed, but actually I don't think it's as widespread as we might like to think it is, is the psychology and what people are trying to manage. And there's so many versions of demonizing your relationship with food or your body mm-hmm. and working out your internal world whatever's going on in your internal world, let's call it trauma, let's call it some different measures and levels of distress. And then you're manifesting these physical symptoms out there to deal with what's in here. Mm-hmm. And I think what's really difficult is that people get in a pickle and then find it some, almost impossible to, to unpick everything and work out kind of what motivated them in the first place.
1: Yes, that's such a good point. There's this really great analogy. I hope that I don't butcher it, but dieting always starts off as um, a survival mechanism. It it starts off either to cope with trauma, to act as a distraction, act as something to focus on, right? And, And anyone who's listening, like think back on the first time that you ever dieted, it had a function. For me, it was this function of control or a feeling worthy, a feeling like you're working towards something. And so imagine that there's this river that is flowing really quickly downstream and you fall into this weather, this, this river. And then eventually there's this log that presents to you. And this log is your lifesaver, is the thing that you can hold on to so that you don't get swept away by this river. And then as you're holding on to this log, eventually you like slowly go downstream and you get to a point where you're now safe and you can let go of this log. But you have this mentality that I can't swim to the shore. I will start drowning and I need this log to survive. But in order to get to the shore, you need both arms to swim. So you actually have to let go of Mm. that log. Mm. And dieting is that log. You first brought it into your life with a function, whether it was, like I said, to not feel certain really heavy things that were happening in your life. So I'm going to numb it with dieting or with food. And that function served you at that time, maybe not well, but it did. And now you're at a point where it's not serving you anymore, and that's what you had mentioned before. Like that first week or month or even year mm. feels really great. Like you feel like you're moving forward. Yeah, and I then, think
0: it's I think it's worth saying also that not everyone develops eating disorders or behaviours because of dieting, and that they are many, many things and 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 multi nuanced. Um, yeah, different with arfid and and and. ADHD and autism and, and all sorts but I mm-hmm. um, I because we're coming to the end of the interview and I had all sorts of things to ask you. <laughs> You've been so eloquent. I've just been like, yeah, I can just let Sabrina go. How fantastic. <laughs> You've kind of actually answered everything. Uh, it, so we know that you uh, obviously all your details I'm going all your details will be on our show notes and on our Instagram etc. But what's your you mentioned your tagline What's your mm-hmm. mission? I think you have a
1: mission, being a high achiever. What is it? Yeah, absolutely. I do have a mission. <laughs> um, do share? My mission is really to dismantle diet culture. Okay. Uh, Brilliant. Yeah, because it's <laughs> it's such a powerful force. That okay.
0: Okay. people back. Okay. So I'm sure you're going to write about it, or you are writing about it, or presenting, or, and not just doing one-to-one work. Is that a fair Oh, yeah. No, claim? I have a
1: group coaching program, the Food Freedom Academy. So okay. that's where... I work with a large group of women to help them find food freedom.
0: Okay, that is fantastic. And we will point everyone your way. You've been an absolutely delightful guest. and um, Thank you so much. But before you go, I have a very important question to ask you, which is if you were going to an island, any kind of island, any kind of climate, what five favorite foods would you take with you? You do have a store cupboard which has seasoning, olive oil, et cetera.
1: Ooh, great yeah. question. <laughs> um Okay. I'm going to, I'm going to go with number one. I would bring, I would bring apples just because they're super, like they last a very long time. Okay, and cool. I don't think that I would be able to live without some kind of fruit there. Yeah. Um, I would bring, I would bring pizza because okay. pizza is one of my favorite foods. <laughs> what type of pizza? Ah, uh, I really like roasted vegetable pizzas. Mm. Mm-hmm. Maybe even some goat cheese and sun-dried tomatoes on there. That's okay. really my style. <laughs> <laughs> um, I would bring. Oh my god, what a good question! Apple I guess pizza. I'm going to I'm yeah. going to bring protein bars because they're so convenient and like lasting. And as you can tell, like I'm really talking about practi- pr- practicality here. Yeah. Um. I'm going to say bread and cheese. as ah, my two last ones. Amazing. Okay. What kind of cheese?
0: Ooh, brie cheese. Oh, lovely. Lovely. Yeah. Okay. I, I've just got this vision of you on the island. You've got your food, you're ready, and then you're going to be chopping down trees and building a boat just to get the hell off the
1: island. Oh, yes. Absolutely. <laughs> you I'm might not be very doing- good in terms of survival skills, but I will do my best. <laughs> and you might, you might be doing some swimming in the nearby lagoon and like practicing.
0: <laughs> Sabrina, thank you so much for coming on Love This Food Thing podcast.
1: You've been an absolute joy. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure.
0: If you'd like to learn more about the mission we're on today and who we help, simply head to lovethisfoodthing.com to see all the details.